This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast. I'm your host this week, Anne Nicholson-Weber, and my guests are three artists who are involved with the Ballet of Solo Festival, currently playing in different venues in Rogers Park. Um, with me are Sharon Evans, who's the former artistic director at Live Bait Theater and one of the founders of the festival 15 years ago, something yes. like that, and who's also directing one of the shows and co-curated this year's festival. Matt Miller is a director around town, and he's performing in the festival his own piece. And likewise, Jeffrey Sweet is a um, playwright well-known in Chicago circles and doing uh, a solo piece that focuses on some of the history of Chicago theater. Um, so welcome to you all. And maybe, Sharon, you could just sort of set the stage by explaining a little bit about the history of the festival, why you thought this would be a good good idea, um, and some of the high points along the way, and what it is now. Uh, Live Bait Theater was started 20 years ago, and in, fa in fact, our first show was a solo show, and it was James Grigsby. And a lot of people at the time told me that people wouldn't pay, you know, to come and see a solo performer for, uh, I think we had him for a six-week run, and he, in fact, was quite successful. And so solo performance has always been a very strong part of live bait. And then at some point, we just had so many proposals for people who wanted to do regular um, theater runs that we decided to do a festival over the summer. And I think we started one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and it just was immensely successful. And then frequently... The uh, standouts from the festival we would then produce further into the season. Uh, for example, Mary Scruggs did a wonderful show, and we ended up producing her um, outside of the festival. And so it just became a great way to cultivate talent. Mm -hmm. And what are the um, guidelines for the pieces that you choose? Are there rules? Are there things that you can't do other than a piece with more than one performer? I think that Dorothy and I both have an inclination toward um, um, pieces that are not one-person plays, that are more personal, biographical, um, not stand-up, but we, we are susceptible to humor. And uh, we, Dorothy and I have very similar taste when we were going through the proposals this year. We were very similar. And so that's, that's kind of where, where we, we go. Mm -hmm. And Dorothy being artistic director at Lifeline at Dorothy Milne and co-curator uh, co of this year's festival. Um, well, so uh, Matt and Jeffrey, maybe each of you could talk about, you know, what's a nice director like you? What's a nice playwright like you doing getting up by yourself in front of an audience and talking about stories from your past. So, you know, Matt? I, well, for me, I guess it's not that much of a stretch in that as a director, your job is telling stories. <laughs> your job is uh, making sure the story works on stage. And this is uh, not too far of a, uh, a leap from that work, certainly. Um, I, you know, for me, I like the aspect of... Uh, sitting in a theater where there isn't the same kind of fourth wall, there isn't the same kind of separation, at least in the way that I like to to, to um, tell stories in this format, uh, where we're kind of conscious of the fact that we're in a theater together. Yeah. I'm telling a story to a crowd that I can oftentimes look right in their eyes because we're not playing the same 
same game as we normally do when I'm performing a play or putting a play together. Uh, and there's something really refreshing in that, uh, for me at least, because I do traffic in, in the making of plays, uh, for my day gig. So, uh-huh. so this is a nice, uh, little change of pace, uh, for me at least to, to be on stage and actively telling a story in a little different way than I'm, I'm accustomed to these days. And do you have uh, I don't know, training as a storyteller? Is there such a thing? Um, I, you know, yes and no, I guess. Um, I have been a member of Second Story, uh, which is a, a, a company that morphed out of Serendipity Theater, which is a, a group that I was one of the original members of. And they've done quite a lot in terms of educating their writers in the, uh, the ways of performance as they tend to cultivate writers more than uh, performers these days, or at least that's become the case. Uh, and so they do have a, a, a branch of their work that is about teaching microphone etiquette, teaching stage presence to mm-hmm. people who might have a great story to tell, but um, are in some cases shooting themselves in the foot <laughs> with the the just kind of lack of experience they have of, of working with an, a live audience and working with just some of the very basic things that can help make your story uh, uh, much more clear to the audience. So there's the performing aspect, and then mm-hmm. obviously there's the writing aspect. Yes, and I'd say that I have a little bit more training, I guess, on that side of the mm-hmm. equation. Uh, my degree's in literature, and uh, I had a fair amount of, of uh, uh, you know, writing writing coursework in college. So I feel like that's actually been the, the training that's been most beneficial for this work is, is, uh, that degree in literature. Um, but then certainly, um, you know, some of it is just life experience where you're at the bar and you're swapping yeah. stories and, uh, you learn anecdotally over time what's working, what's not working in a story. And I feel like that's even more valuable, that kind of experience in telling stories. And mm-hmm. one of the stories that I tell in my show is a story that I've told anecdotally for a long time. And, uh, when I've tried to write it out, it actually loses a little bit of its, um, its magic. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've, kind of resisted the impulse to script out that story like I do with most of my pieces simply because I've found that this story works best when I don't script the life out of it. (laughs) Well, I want to go back to that eventually because I think that's really interesting, the question of what makes a story effective Mm -hmm. if it's prepared or effective, more effective if it's more extempore. He's very funny. (laughs) And being funny, I guess, is something that you can um, hone, but it's also something... That sort of a gift. You just have to have, right? Well, thank you. Um, well, the last question for you, Matt, before I ask Jeffrey a few questions is, how experienced are you as a solo guy, um, solo performer? Well, I guess if I think about it, I've been doing it for, uh, you know, close to eight or nine years now in Chicago. Um, I, I gig around now. At, uh, you know, it's really cool. So, storytelling in Chicago is, I think, akin to what stand-up comedy kind of was in the early 80s. Hmm. Like, there's all these rooms that are springing up suddenly. And so there's a scene. There is a scene. Oh, uh, I've, I've, I tell it, um, you know, I, I tell it the moth occasionally, um, second story still, uh, this much is true, uh, essay fiesta, the story shop, uh, you know, so there's, there's a really good scene that's fairly young and fairly new, but very much uh, a thriving scene. And 
And it's it's really fun. It could be because a lot of the people who were doing the work when I was coming up were teaching. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a whole crop of younger artists. You know, Stephanie Shaw teaches at Columbia College. And, you know, it, it does impact, you know, so... You know, it's a generational. Yeah, well, I remember when I first moved to Chicago, David Kadesky and Stephanie Shaw and like, uh, you know, Thomas Herrera. And, and going to see some of these, uh, these people who just were magic when they got up on stage and mm-hmm. told these stories that were, uh, so thought provoking, so intelligent, so funny, and just being incredibly moved by those experiences. And, um, it definitely, re- you know, I was definitely guilty of, oh, a solo show, is that going to be fun? Am I going to enjoy that? But when you go and you see these people who are just so incredibly skilled at what they do, it's a, it's a magical night. It's, it's really wonderful. Well, how many millennia have we been sitting around in circles listening to a storyteller? I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so Jeffrey, um, you're, I think of you as a playwright. Is that too limited? Um, it's home base. Uh-huh. And you're you're a member. We should have said of the Victory Gardens. I'm uh, indeed a member of the Victory Gardens Ensemble. I've been yeah. doing uh, plays there since uh, 1979. But you're now based in, or have been for a while, based in New York. I've been based in New York since 1967, and I stumbled into a relationship with Victory Gardens because I wrote a book about Second City called Something Wonderful Right Away. And when I came back into town to plug the book, uh, the late and great Joyce Sloan read uh, the jacket copy and said, oh, you're a playwright? I'm on the board of the Victory Gardens Theater. You're going to take the number 22 bus and get off. And by that time, I would have told them that you're coming and they should be nice to you. <laughs> so I said, sounds fine to me. And they were nice to me. They put up uh, a play of mine that uh, turned out to be a surprise hit for them. And they said, okay, stick around. And I've stuck around uh, since then. I think I've done, I don't know if it's 14 or 15 plays yeah. with them. It's such a luxury for a playwright to have a home life. That. It it's is so a, a great luxury. Well, so talk about the difference between writing a play and either, if you think of it as writing or doing the monologue that you delivered last night. Well, uh, writing a play, I'm uh, creating uh, other people's consciousness, and they're speaking and acting out of that, and I'm uh, hidden, I hope, well behind the curtain so that nobody even thinks of me. In uh, doing this piece, uh, I stepped in front of the curtain, and um, if you aren't thinking of me, then I'm doing a really crappy job. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do still see myself being uh, in the service of the story. I think that uh, what was interesting to me about doing this piece was not me. It was about my progress towards getting to know this community of people and what I could learn from them. So it's less about, uh, it's less about me and about, you know, great breakthroughs that I've had and uh, more about encountering the likes of Paul Sills and Del Close and uh, Sheldon Patinkin and also uh, discovering the relationship between um, politics, history and the stage. Because it wasn't until I started thinking about this that the uh, relationship between the pogroms in Russia uh-huh. and, and, and the uh, uh, the explosion of satiric comedy in uh, in America in uh, the 50s and 60s and onward uh, became clear to me. And then I realized, oh, I have the same background that these people have. No wonder they speak for me. Yeah, you know, they tried to kill my grandma too. Right. So. Um, uh, is this the first time you've done this kind of performance? Uh, it's the first time in front of uh, professionally. Um, I, I do a lot of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I find I'm drawing on a lot of the same uh, skills that I use to try to hold uh, the attention of uh, of students. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's very familiar muscles. Um, it, but uh, I haven't done this. I mean, this is the first time I've performed professionally since I was 10 or 11 years old when I was a child actor here in Chicago and 
did a couple of episodes of a long-forgotten TV series called Light Time. Which was, which was shot at Fred Nile Studios and was 15-minute uh, episodes in moral education for young Lutherans, which I am not one of. <laughs> but it was a, it was a, a happy experience. So um, how nervous were you when you first stood up in front of an audience not, to do this piece? Not. not. And that's the teaching and the who knows what. Yeah, it's just, it's just um, I, I've been teaching for so long and I've been getting up in front of uh, groups and giving speeches or, uh, or, or talking or whatever mm-hmm. for, for so long that uh, um, I just I have grown stupid and have forgotten to be scared. Um, well, the pleasures of older age. My, uh, my, <laughs> right. My biggest concern is I sometimes get so carried away in the story that I'm telling that I sometimes skip a couple of points that I should have stayed uh-huh. with, and I go on a tangent, and then I go, whoops, forgot that, and then I loop around and I, I, I pick it up. But that's that's the biggest concern that I have, because um, I, I don't have a, a word-for-word text. Mm-hmm. I have uh, sort of bullet points, and I like to improvise my way through the bullet points. I imagine if you did a transcript from night to night, you'd find out, that it would be about eighty-five or ninety percent the same, but it's not more, word for word, though. But just no, in no, terms of very close, really? very oh, close to word for word. Huh. Um, but uh, I find that the desire to share the story with people is becomes a point of focus rather than uh, remembering words. Write a script, yeah. So I'd rather make contact with the audience and share and share the story with people than say, okay, what word comes here, what word comes there. Now, this is in contrast, say, to uh, um, Jenny Allen's wonderful piece, mm-hmm. uh, First I Got Sick, Then I Got Well, which is word for word, mm-hmm. the same from show to show. But she, she is a different kind of uh, performer than I am. She finds that she needs the comfort of the crutch of having all the words there and that they are sort of... Uh, burned into her nervous system mm-hmm. and it makes her feel very comfortable. Uh, we were talking uh, last night after our our shows. She uh, she did the first show. I did the second show last night. And she said, I couldn't do what you do. I couldn't stand up mm-hmm. and, and do that. And I said, well, I don't think I could do what you, you do. do. <laughs> Memorize I'm, the, I'm, I'm an hour of text. Yeah. Right, right. So uh, it's a good thing that we yeah. aren't doing what each other, or trying to do what each other does because right. we would both be abject failures instead of the splendid successes that we both are. Well, so there are, I mean, the interesting thing is there aren't really rules about this. There are two mm-hmm. things that have come up that I want to be sure we go back to. Mm-hmm. And one is... Sharon, your decision or your preference, let's say, for autobiographical pieces, because there's certainly no rule that solo, a, a festival of solo performance has to be essentially autobiographical monologues, which I don't know if all the pieces are, but certainly the two I've seen were. Um, and then the other thread I don't want to lose is this question of how you decide. I mean, Jeffrey, you've said you don't do scripted because you couldn't. But Matt has two stories, and he does the well, two different ways. Well, put a gun to my head, and I probably would. <laughs> but it's not right. Yeah. I don't so, think it'd be as Well, good. I don't do a lie detector test like Oprah. <laughs> right. I mean, I just think that I, um, when people tell personal stories, they just resonate in a different way. And I have gotten um, proposals that to me are are more one-person plays. You maybe mm-hmm. they're about historical figures, or and, or they're on the phone all the time. You know, and it's just different than the sort of visceral go to a bar, get in front of a yeah. crowd. I I have an urgency to tell you the story, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's sort of like I know it when I hear it, and um, that's what I tend to, to go for. Mm-hmm. And I've given a lot of people, you know, their first chance who have gone on and done quite well. So I've accepted at this point that I think I have a good nose for people. Um, and Dorothy 
does too. Right. You know, right. we talk about it. And also we try to balance the fest. You know, we've always done that. I always try to bring in younger people so that there's a sense that, that we're exploring all aspects of the form. We're not mm-hmm. just taking the same four people every year that we're bringing in other people. We try to make it a diverse, uh, points of view as, you know, uh, as much as possible. And so, you know, we just, we like to surprise people. And I think as a producer, it's quite fun to have people come up to me and say, never been to a solo show, and it's just as good as the play. It's just mm-hmm. as fun. It's just as funny. You know, I, I just can't believe how much I like this. And I've heard that many, many times over the years, and that's immensely satisfying for me. Have you ever made an exception and produced one that really is a, a one-person play, or are they always? No, I mean we've made exceptions. Marty Sanders wanted to do a piece with her father, and she said, um, "And he's going to be on stage with me, and he's going to do a ten-minute tap dance <laughs> as part of my solo show." <laughs> and I went, "When? How old is your father?" You know, I think he was in his late seventies. Mm-hmm. And I went, "Sounds great," <laughs> you know, and it was uh, a big success. Yeah. And so, you know, I think I'm open. I mean, I'm not a formalist where it has to be a certain way. But um, if someone tries to give me a one-act play and there are other characters, I think I know the difference. So I don't really go for it mm-hmm. in this festival. Yeah. Right. This is something very particular. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the question, and I'm going to ask Matt this because he's got the controlled experiment going, mm-hmm. um, of why one story, the first story you tell, is better scripted and the second story you tell is better not scripted. Uh, you know, I've been trying to answer that question with this one particular story for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I've ri- I have written it out. Mm-hmm. And every time I've written it out, I've thrown it away because I've lost what I felt like was the soul of it. Um, what I have through that writing determined, though, is kind of the structure of the moments. What, and what Jeffrey does. Exactly, the, the yeah. And, how the, and it mm-hmm. is more, uh, you know, I'd say that, uh, you know, I'm three or four shows in. And so there is a a certain... Uh, um, you know, solidity now to what I'm doing with it. But it was memorizing the moments and memorizing where the thread of your story is and how it moves in and out. But really it's about being open to what the audience is responding to. And on different nights, they're into different parts of the story. And that kind of gives you the ability to expand your contract pieces of the story that seem to be connecting with the audience. That's the lovely thing about storytelling in this format is that you can be completely responsive to what the audience is doing. And there's a couple moments in the story where if I get a big laugh on this particular moment, there's a couple other details that I might go into a little bit more explanation uh, with do you than do I, that I with might otherwise. The first, why don't you quickly, and we'll uh, have Jeffrey do the same thing. What sure. are the two stories? I, I have two stories. The first, uh, the first story is called The Gift of Wood, and it is uh, based on an experience I had the first summer I went to scout camp. Uh, I'm an Eagle Scout, so this was a uh, a pivotal uh, moment in my development, this mm-hmm. first uh, summer camp experience. And it's it, the story of, in particular, one boy that uh, um, <laughs> was in our troop at the time, and his name was Huey Ickes. And uh, I'll stop right there because the rest of the story it's is... The story. <laughs> yeah, the rest of the story is the story. Uh, but that's the first uh, piece. And then the second piece is... Um, a story, uh, essentially about one of the worst days of my life, uh, April 23rd, 2003. And, uh, it's this kind of epic story that I had told, I, I didn't tell for many years because it was just a little too painful. And 
when I did start telling it anecdotally to friends, I was amazed at the response I was getting. Like everything from tears of joy because they were laughing so hard to people coming up and telling me in quiet moments, I had something similar like that happen to me and it was awful. And thanks for sharing that story. And, uh, you know, I was just kind of amazed at the, the spectrum of responses I got to it. And so I, I began to tell it more and more. And, you know, as I mentioned, I, I tried scripting it out a few times and it seemed like it was always better when I just told the story and wasn't worrying about getting specific phrasing right, but really made my first allegiance to just sharing the story, listening to my audience and what they were responding to and, and going from there. I wonder if, I'm just speculating, but as I think about it, the first story, you're essentially an observer. It's about a group of kids. It's about mm-hmm. one kid, but it's not, you're not the protagonist. Yeah. The second story, you are totally, you are the only <laughs> character. <Yeah. laughs> and I, and I wonder if there's some difference, at least for you and how you, what you latch on to. You know, that's those very, two different that's very perceptive. View. I think that could be why the first story I do have, um, much more scripted out. That is a story mm-hmm. that I wrote out and I do perform almost verbatim night to night. Um, and I think that might be part of it is that I was, uh, there was a little bit of a remove and I was able to be an observer to this event as it unfolded at scout camp. And, uh, and the other story I'm more invested in personally because it was something that was happening to me. And certainly you know, as an observer, you're still, I think, active in that experience to a degree, but uh, you know, that might be part of it. That might be well, part of the reason why that. Because, because as happens. an observer, then it's the technique of how you tell it is mm-hmm. what makes the story go. Whereas for your second story, <laughs> Yeah. What happens is all we need. Yeah. Well, but now Jeffrey's kind of a counterexample because you're, well, you're talking about things that happened to you, but as a way really of introducing these very fascinating figures from Chicago theater history. Yeah. So I would probably say you were more of an observer in most of those stories than you were the protagonist. I, I would say so. I think I'm, I'm in the service of telling the story that a lot of people don't know, which mm-hmm. is strange when you consider that Chicago is the improvisation capital of the United States and probably the world, mm-hmm. that uh, fewer and fewer people know where this form that they're devoting themselves to, sometimes with the fervor of religious fanatics, um, they don't know where it came from. Right. A lot of them don't know who uh, Viola Spolin was or who Paul Sills was uh, and who Del Close was. Uh, and I think it's kind of important to know where the stuff came from. They also don't know that it came out of political times. They don't know that this material came out of a reaction to uh, to oppression. And uh, so uh, I, I feel myself... I'll tell you, where you know where the piece got started, really? Uh, about a year and a half ago, Second City had their 50 for, uh, 50th anniversary birthday party, and I was there with, uh, I don't know, hundreds of Second City alum, um, delighted to be there. And uh, when it was over, there was an article in the New York Times, and I got an email from a, a very well-known figure from the early days who was absolutely enraged that uh, in this article, the Times had not bothered to mention Paul Sills, who had created Second City, or Nichols and May, or Shelley Berman, or David Shepard, or um, any of the people who had founded the movement. And there was, uh, all these people read the article in the Times and were furious. Mm -hmm. So one of them, you know, got in touch with me and said, a great wrong has been done and it is up to you to write it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why? You're better known than I am. And uh, precisely because they were better known uh, than I am, they didn't want to be seen to be, you know, Weeping their downcast state about not having been mentioned. <laughs> uh-huh. They said, you know, go out, go out and tell the story. 
So I thought, well, I don't want to just tell the story because it's a lecture. I mean, I've told it as a lecture, but who wants to? Most people, you say, oh, lecture, they don't want to go to see a lecture. Right. So I thought, how do I make it more entertaining? And uh, and how do I make it be a, a one-person show and not a lecture? And then I put myself into it and discovered that my journey had some parallels to their mm-hmm. journey and uh, gave it more personal stakes. Mm-hmm. And it also... I discovered as I was doing it that uh, there was an objective that I really hadn't uh, recognized when I started doing it, which is I fled Chicago when I was a kid because in those days there was very little happening theatrically, very little. So I went to New York because I thought, well, that's where more interesting stuff was happening. And then shortly after I went to New York, I discovered that there were all these people who were coming out of Second City who were doing extraordinary things, and then I wanted to study this. So... Uh, I wrote a book about it and which brought me back to, which brought me back to Chicago. So it became to some degree about a search for home. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of stories are about a search for home, mm-hmm. but I found that in fleeing Chicago, it just brought me right back to Chicago as my artistic home. So, um, how do people know about Filet of Solo? How do they submit, Sharon? How do you kind of let the world know that this happens and that people who want to do this kind of work should send you their stuff? Well, people in the past um, have just called and said, I want to be in it next year. Mm-hmm. And we have a, um, I used to have a May 1st deadline. I think Dorothy pushed it. She said, no, no, that's too, far, you know. So that's I too think late. It's, yeah, too late. Mm-hmm. So she, I think it's um, February uh, maybe March 1st. Mm-hmm. And, uh, people submit scripts and then sometimes people call and I'll chat with them a little bit and we'll talk about whether it's appropriate, uh, for the festival and they'll send it to me. And then Dorothy and I do a lot of, of reading and discussing and making sure that, you know, that some stories aren't duplicated, which right. is kind of funny because I'm directing Kelly Strickland and she's all about the Girl Scouts. So I think <laughs> oh, perhaps... Yeah, well, that's a resonance, we, yeah, not a duplication. Yeah, we need to uh, do a show together, perhaps. <laughs> right. um, and, mm. and so that's how we, we do it. And so then, But the rehearsal process, there's some amount of, uh, you know, getting the solo performer ready to do this. I mean, just because right. you can write it out doesn't mean it's easy to perform. And these exactly. stories are personal many times mm-hmm. and they're on paper and then they read them out loud and then they look at me and they go, Oh, there's going to be an audience. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Now I remember. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of solo people and help them clarify their story, mm-hmm. get comfortable, jettison, you know, the stuff that's a distraction, mm-hmm. focus, keep it at a good length. And I've been doing that for Years. So you would pick a piece without knowing if the person has a stutter? Well, we do, um, want, we have their resume and we also insist they have a director. Uh Now, how much they utilize Mm -hmm. that director is up to them, but Mm -hmm. there has to be someone on the outside that we can talk to about technical things. Yeah. And so that people usually are pretty agreeable to that. They'll say, oh yeah, I, I know someone or I have a friend or, mm-hmm. and, um, if they're smart, they get a good director because it can make a big difference, um, just working. Sure. And so, you know, we make requests like that. But, uh, but I'm actually really fascinated that you would curate essentially on the basis of the written text as opposed to the performance. I can hear a solo show when I read it and mm-hmm. I, there's something lively and uh, personalized in a good solo show, unexpect, I look for unexpected stories. I mean, there are a lot of cliches out there and we probably 
aren't interested in that. Um, sometimes, um, you know, it could be someone that's too young that you just don't get a sense that they could hold a full evening. Yeah. And then we'll suggest that they share an evening. And so we do try to nurture uh, talent in that way. And, in fact, um, there have been solo artists that um, I've produced doing a 10-minute piece a 20-minute piece, over the years, a 30-minute uh -huh. piece, and then finally they do a full uh -huh. evening. Uh -huh. And, you know, we want to see people succeed. Yeah. And so, you know, we work with them. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the solo scene, Matt, that you were describing, and I don't know, is there something equivalent There's in a, New York? There's a, a substantial, the Moth is a big presence in New York now, uh -huh. and there are a lot of solo pieces uh, in New York. My wife, uh, runs an, uh, a non-profit company in New York called Artistic New Directions. And uh, Artistic New Directions is producing three pieces for the New York Fringe. And all three are solo pieces, including mm -hmm. uh, mine is going to be part of that. The way you're producing these pieces, um, Sharon, here is it, they're, they're really, it's theater in terms of the setting. You know, we walk in and it's dark seats and mm -hmm. a stage and lighting and... Is that the case in these other kind of venues, Matt, that you were talking about? Um, yes and no. They all have their own aesthetic. Mm -hmm. um, some very much so. You know, like Second Story is a much more produced affair. There, mm -hmm. There's a sound designer. There's stage management. You know, they have a very clear aesthetic for what they do. Uh, some other rooms are just as simple as uh, a podium in a bookstore and... Mm -hmm. Instead of an open mic, though, it is invited readers who are sharing stories, and so there is uh, that distinction. You know, Filet of Solo, I think, is you know similar to Second Story in that there there are some expectations in terms of mm. the artistic aesthetic, and that you know they do take a little bit of time to put together. Well, they're produced by theatrical producers. Exactly, I mean, that's exactly. Gonna... So there there is uh, there is some some packaging mm -hmm. <laughs> there that that helps the pieces, I think. Well, there. I'm really fascinated in the way that theater and storytelling are related, but aren't the same. I mean, you know, Matt, when you said, well, as a director, my job is to tell the story. Well, yes, but in a way that's... It's it's telling the story by assembly. You know, mm -hmm. it's assembling all of the right people yeah. to tell the story and right. then making sure everybody's doing their job and then make sure that you are the person who is also got an eye on is, is everything happening at the right time and, uh, you know, both on stage and off. Um, and, and it's a different skill set when you are the person who's, who's actually telling the story right. and is in harmony with the audience and is, uh, you know, in that moment. It's, but, it's different. But the roots of the theater are the single mm -hmm. storyteller yeah. who at a certain point said, Oh, I need somebody to be uh, the buffalo. Here, you know, <laughs> right. Jay, come over here, be, be, be the buffalo, you know. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So it, it, it started off, it actually, uh, acting and theater really started off in, um, uh, journalistic roots. This is something that people, they don't pay much attention to. They think, oh, theater came out of religion. But I think, in fact, years ago, I did an interview with Louis L'Amour, if you remember mm -hmm. the old Western writer. Right. I don't know how we got onto the subject, but he started to talk about how uh, American Indians, when they came back from a battle or from a hunt, knew as part of their responsibility, they had to get up and tell that story of the battle or the hunt to their community. They didn't have a written language, so the only way that they could get this stuff out to the people in their community is to stand up and do this with everybody uh, communicate uh, together. The actor was originally fulfilled the function of the journalist. And I think there's something that happens when the actor 
re-embraces uh, the imperative of being a journalist, of telling the stories of, of their community to back to the community. Mm-hmm. I think there's an extra energy that comes out of that. I think speaking of uh, of Indians telling stories, we had Chicago cops who were untrained as actors that I put in an, in Filet of Solo, and they told their cop stories and performed. And it was very liberating for them because they hold in a lot of their job, and they feel that the public is highly critical of them most mm-hmm. of the time. And so for them to tell these stories and the audience was just fascinated and they're saying yeah. they're, they're real cops. I go, yes, they're real cops. I mean, yeah. I think two had some acting classes, but the other two were just cops. And I just threw them into Filet Solo. And the cops, you know, their voice, they're known for their storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they do battle. And so, um, you know, so mm-hmm. I think it's unexpected uh, things like that that have made Filet Solo um, exciting over the years and why people come back because they know they won't see the same thing. Well, it's a very interesting piece of the Chicago theater scene and I just wanted to highlight it for our listeners. So thank you, all three of you, for coming to talk about it. Thank Pleasure. you. Thank you. Thank you.